Welcome to the AMPA Podcast. My name is Omar Moalem, your host, here to psych you up for the 2018 Alberta Magazines Conference. The event, as always, brings together the best minds in editorial, design, marketing, and advertising to Calgary for two days of seminars, workshops, and an awards gala celebrating Alberta's best magazines. So, leading up to March 8th and 9th, I'm interviewing keynotes that you can meet there. We'll share tips and wisdom and talk lots of shop. And in this particular episode, I'm talking shop with Amy Schellenbaum, the online director of Popular Science, fresh off a website redesign that goes counter to what a lot of us have been told over the last decade. See, like so many magazines, Popular Science went the daily route by publishing as many stories online as possible, up to 30 a day. They were quick and dirty and chasing clicks. But last year, under Amy's direction, they brought that number down to about seven high-quality stories a day. As Amy put it, it's a no-frills site that echoes what they do best, engaging science and tech journalism. They're not chasing trend news, they're not using algorithms or headlines to trick people into clicking, and yet that's what's happening. People are clicking, bounce rates are down, unique visitors are way, way up, and the audience is growing. Amy's meteoric rise indicates that she has an intuition for what publishers need and readers want right now. Since graduating from J School in 2012, she's worked in old media at El Decor and Travel and Leisure magazine, and new media at Vox's Architecture and Design blog Curbed, and Legacy Media, the New York Times, and of course, the 146-year-old Popular Science magazine. She's got the kind of resume that makes me wonder what I've done with my life. Here to help me figure that out is, of course, Amy Schellenbaum, joining me via Skype. Hello, Amy. Hi, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for joining me on the show. Of course. Anyone in the industry has been to their fair share of digital publishing seminars and has probably been told and told again the importance of your magazine's online platform. But you gave me a peek at your AMPA seminar, and it's the first time that I've seen the argument that less is more. In the online realm, anyway. So at PopSci, you went from publishing about 25 stories a day to about seven. Tell me why you did that. Tell me what happened when you did that. Contrary to the expectation of uh, many of my peers and and, and also somewhat contrary to my my own expectation, when we turned our story count way down and started focusing on creating pieces that were time-intensive and servicey and engaging and well-reported, we actually saw traffic go up. I mean, there's this, uh, if you build it, they will come sort of mindset in online media. And I'm not saying that's not true, but I'm saying that it might not be the best strategy for certain publications, especially if you're like ours and have a relatively small staff. You know, it is really tempting to chase news and rely on these sort of, at this point, old traffic boosting standbys, including things like trailing trending stories or gaming Facebook's algorithms, writing around videos you didn't make. Uh, tricking users into reading a one-sentence answer to a question headline, all those stuff, it will give you like a a preliminary quick jolt of traffic, but it's not really a sustainable way to run a media business. Uh, And it's not going to build brand authority, and it's not going to be adequate in the wrong long run you're i think you're right in the in sort of the the hullabaloo over how to grow an online audience it really felt like we were just throwing things at a wall but pop size approach has been to throw very few things very specific things at this wall this very like curated wall i'm killing the wall metaphor but you talk about seeing your traffic increase by how much exactly? Was it that significant? Year over year, we just got our 
like for the last couple of weeks, the first half of January, we're up like 41% in UVs and a lot more for um, for page views, although page views is kind of a, a silly metric. Basically, people um, people who handle ad revenue that you know involves advertising on um, every every single page care about that. But really, for unique visitors, that's kind of the better the better metric in terms of like measuring site growth and site health. Um, and so we're up about like 40% year over year, and it really depends on the month. But um, for October, for example, we were up like. 70% according to according to Comscore and that's been really cool to see and it's not like we're multiplying by four or five times our audience in a year but we're doing it in a way that is I think very sustainable brand building it it's good for popular science um, in the long run and you know maybe it makes total strategic sense for some publications to continue in 2017 to reblog and recirculate news without really adding anything of value um, but it's it's also just like not what I came into the profession to do and I love my job because I think news and especially science journalism is so important now you know the journalism that popular science editors do is important and entertaining and I genuinely think our planet and democracy relies on figuring out this whole digital media thing so for us that's not reblogging and that's going back you know, to basics, as it were. If someone were to go to popsci.com right now, they're going to see um, some articles on why cutting cutting weight is so dangerous for professional fighters, uh, why fat is so good and science can't do a dang thing about it, uh, articles about drones planting trees, really sciencey, obviously, but also really approachable and not unlike what you would find in the monthly issue. What did it look like before the re- revamp? How different was it when you were publishing 25, 30 stories a day? So I have to be totally honest with you. They they were publishing 25 stories before I started, and when I started was when we really turned that down. So I can't really give you an honest answer about what sort of store. I mean, I could because I was reading PopSci ahead of time, but I was not managing that workflow or those budgets or whatever. And there are a million different factors that go go into that. Um, I will say that now just when you have a staff and you, you're not feeling the pressure to follow or chase news, um, it means that your stories can be better reported and more thoughtful, more analytical, um, and that is kind of what, what we want. We always want to move the ball forward rather than, um, rehash something that people could read elsewhere. Um, which is, which is kind of complicated because it's not to say that there's no value in rehashing news because in, because in fact, a lot of our readers might not get science news or news in general from other sources. And you can't really assume that, but I do think that if you're not, contributing either more reporting or a different angle or um, a a new approach to a story. It's kind of a waste of time to do it. You've also taken sort of a new approach to science reporting with this uh, new vertical called Scientifically. It's sort of an upworthy style vertical of science journalism. Is it just a Facebook vertical? Scientifically is something we've been thinking about since like spring of last year. And it's basically a Facebook page that's got a um, don't bum me out filter for popular science stories. So there we kind of post the stories that are really awe-inspiring and totally amazing. And topics for this kind of thing are like animal behavior, space exploration, environmental innovation, blah, blah, blah. 
Um, the, the page is still super small, but I think one of the reasons why we we created it was because it's like so important for people to rediscover why science is cool. If we can get folks to love science again, it'll be easier to convince the world to believe in what science says, even or especially when those things have somehow become controversial. You know, if they love science, they're more likely to trust when it says things like global climate change is real and humanity is causing it or vaccines are essential for our civilization or uh, GMOs aren't making you sick, you know, and so on for us scientifically is kind of reintroducing people to like the wonder and the, the beauty and the, the incredible information we get from science. And I'm, I'm hoping that that will kind of convert some people who maybe don't necessarily listen to the scientific consensus. It must be really interesting to be working at a science magazine at this time when for a lot of people, facts have become almost subjective. And Meg Loft said a trend for 2018 would be quality content to counter fake news that everyone's so wary of now. And it's crazy to think that quality could be a trend, but it is true. I mean, online publishing in pursuit of clicks didn't really emphasize quality. And we, the users, we were kind of fine with that for a while. The question is, are we still fine with that? And I'd like to think that for whatever reasons, fake news or otherwise readers demand sounder, more readable as opposed to skimmable content, but I'm skeptical. And I think emphasizing quality might be more wishful thinking than the actual trend. What's your opinion? Yeah, well, I mean, for one, I will say that we turned down our post count before fake news was really a thing. Um, we started doing it, I started turning things down, I believe in October of 2016. So um, fake news was not so much in the zeitgeist quite yet. But I, I would imagine that, that, yeah, people are realizing that you need they need to uh, like keep their receipts, as it were, and to back up every line in the story with facts. And I hope that people are starting to realize that they need to keep their headlines from being so clickable and controversial as to turn off or alienate readers. Um, I'm not really in the uh, I'm not in the future telling business, but mm -hmm. I'd like to believe that people are using this you know fake news awfulness to verify everything and really second guess think you know sacrificing uh sacrificing journalism for traffic or trying to create things that are really controversial or scandalous to get the click and to get the the rage reads when really that scandalous headline might not actually reflect the truth or the even the overall sentiment of the article itself what are your pet peeves in online publishing you mentioned rage reading I also mentioned like tricking users into reading or tricking readers into clicking on a story that basically the answer is no. Will the flu vaccine cause your unborn child to, or to be like less likely to um, have a healthy immune system or something like that, right? And then the answer is no. And the answer is like kind of obviously no, but you, for a lot of people who don't necessarily click into the article, they're getting this thing, they're getting this this headline and it's suddenly like a debate when it really shouldn't even be a debate. Like question headlines are are so powerful because it casts sometimes it casts doubt on things that are like that are well established to be the the scientific reality. It's funny. Yeah, I don't know if that's a real example of or if that you just if you just, you know, conjured that out of the blue, but if if I saw that headline, I would probably assume the answer is yes. A lot of times an article gets a lot of buzz for um, creating controversies or creating um, sort of these like toxic conversations in the in the comments, especially on places like Facebook. 
which really stinks because you're not you're by having a really scandalous headline you're not you're not like developing productive discourse and you're not even really encouraging people to read about the subject you're encouraging people to argue and that's really annoying and also like <laughs> devastating for the profession potentially this less is more mandate for the new pop size very interesting it doesn't only surprise listeners to hear it but it delights them because the obligation to publish constantly is overwhelming you know this goes counter to what magazine editors and designers have been trained to do to publish you know 25 stories a day we're used to publishing 25 stories a month but is there something unique about popular science's audience for this to make sense or do you think that the quick and dirty method of publishing in high volumes has been a misstep for most magazines? I mean, you've said that reblogging is dead, so I assume you believe the latter. I mean, a few things. One, I do think Popular Science's audience is is very unique, and we can like get get to that a little bit later. But um, I also think that like going back to actual reporting is like not going to hurt anybody. I don't think it's going to be. Um, I think it's a pretty solid strategy for any magazine because that is what the people you hired in theory were hired to do and what their skill set is. Um, so I do think that it's, it's good. And you know, to, what you said is something, you said something like has publishing in high volumes been a misstep for most magazines. I don't even know if that's the case, if it has been a misstep, but I just don't think it's like the way forward anymore. And that f- certainly for a lot of publications in the short term, it was a really, it really worked for them. But for a smaller staff, I don't know if it ever worked. And certainly, even for larger staffs, I'm not, I'm kind of looking around and seeing that maybe it's not a viable strategy anymore. And maybe what we need to do is get back into, you know, reporting, writing, getting people on the phone or in person, you know, those kinds of, um, those kinds of like tricks of the trade that many, many journalists were, were trained to, to do. I hope so. I would. <laughs> I was sort of the unofficial web editor for a magazine for a few years, and I remember, I remember just how impossible daily publishing felt. But I also remember the rush of seeing something I spent very little time on succeed. You know, go viral for our our local audiences. Oddly, I don't remember paying too much attention to the larger majority of articles that didn't move much at all. Do you think that there's Maybe more to learn from the content that performs badly. That's a that's a good question, and I and my answer, I guess, is like sort of, or I don't know. What I really think is that we need to stop paying attention to the spikes, which can happen for such random reasons, and you'll drive yourself totally bonkers trying to recreate that perfect storm that created that that huge spike. And instead, we should elevate the underperforming and sort of middling stories. I'm not even sure if looking at the worst stories is the way to go, but I think just looking at the stories that are in the middle. I mean, if you can boost all of your stories by 10%, it's going to be worth so much more traffic-wise and, and frankly, be so much easier and, um, I think, likely more journalistically sound than running around to try and get a story to go viral once a week. That's so exhausting and, frankly... You know, if you have somebody on your on your staff who's like full time dedicated to analyzing trends and and looking at that kind of stuff, I mean, that's awesome. We don't, and it's and I think it's more worth our time to try and lift the floor than to recreate these spikes to raise the ceiling. It's just it's more worthwhile st- strategy wise and also 
keeps things from being like, well, if it didn't spike and if it didn't go viral, it's a loser of a story, which is like totally unfair and a bad way to mm. think about the stories that go online. And frankly, like kind of demoralizing for a writer and editor who spent a lot of time on stories that didn't go viral. So how do you elevate those, the middling ones? I can really only say what we've done at Popular Science, and a lot of it is making um, technical improvements to your website so that people want to linger there. And I also think it's it involves you know growing growing your base audience and you know looking really deeply into what Google, <laughs> frankly, what Google prefers for your website. You know things like a secure connection, kind of following doing really good takes on um, current events and current topics in order to get. Um, some more of that sweet, sweet Google traffic. And then there's also, you know, cultivating partnerships with places and people and, you know, doing things like newsletter swaps and swaps on Facebook. And, um, you know, there's a lot of different ways to do it. But the, the point is that you're not trying to reverse engineer a viral story because that's, one, like rarely going to work. And two, it's just not going to be a very you're going to end up with a bunch of poorly performing and also just not good stories eating. So this um, is, it's not to say that popular science does not have a robust social presence because it, it does. And you know, your talk in fact is about social strategies without giving too much away about it. Um, and in the context of a institutional magazine like pop science, which is 146 years old, is that right? Is the social platform for you more about finding a new audience or is it serving the audience that you still have? Okay, that's an awesome question. And the answer is both, which I think is more radical than it sounds because I think in reality, higher ups at um, media companies, they really want to grow audiences and don't care about keeping the audience they already have so long as the attrition rate is smaller than the growth, right? I do think that's a bit different for popular science and this goes back to what I mentioned earlier, which is I do think our audience is, is very unique. Um, you know, popular science for us, the majority of our Facebook audience, for example, is found in the middle of the country and on the, and in the South and, um, keeping that audience engaged is a really important part of our mission. Um, you know, there are relatively few major science and tech publications for which that is true, who are speaking to the middle of the country and the South. Um, so I, I think it's our duty to both push the boundaries for what they may accept politically without getting them to disengage or give up on science journalism completely. So, you know, it's a really tricky line to walk, but it's also really important. And we have a huge responsibility to keep our current audience loving and trusting science. And I take that very seriously. Our, our whole staff does. Um, so I will say that the answer is that we want to we always want to grow grow our audience because I think what we do at Popular Science is something that is really cool and science-backed science, science backed and, like, fun, and we have a good time, um, you know, explaining these, like, fascinating things about our universe and, you know, as explained by science. Um, but also, and so we want more people to see that. We want more people to see the hard work we do and w the good work we do. But we also don't want to grow our audience at the expense of losing this really valuable, um, incredible um, audience that we do have, which are which is that we're not speaking to both coasts. We're speaking to um, a lot of people who may not follow Wired or The Verge or Gizmodo because they 
for whatever reason, don't agree with the way that they write things. Mm. So you're at this, you're at this legacy magazine right now, but before that you were a part of uh, sort of, you know, part of a, a pioneering new media company, Vox Media. Tell me about what you did at Curbed and what it was like to be a part of uh, building an exciting new media company. Sure. So when I started at Curbed, um, it was for the Curbed.com, which was formerly known as Curbed National. And it was a team of three, and it was my boss, the features editor, and myself. And that was kind of the heyday of of blogging. So I was writing seven to eight stories a day, and several of them were two-sentence, we called them quick links, two-sentence stories that kind of linked off to another um to another publication. Um, and you know, that I do not begrudge that, you know, incredible clip, uh, you know, in which I was writing because that really taught me a lot about, about writing and also media and the internet. And, um, you know, it, it kept from before I was at Curbed, I was actually copy editing at the times at the New York times. And, uh, so then I went from being really precious about every single sentence, every single word, every headline to writing seven to eight things a day. And, you know, having both those experiences back to back was, uh, was really incredible because it, and it did a lot for my writing because it means that you, sometimes you do have to drill down and take, you know, read your stories backwards Mm -hmm. to make sure that the, the, the phrasing works or, you know, not the phrasing, but make sure that. Um, you know, there are no repetitive words and no typos. And then sometimes you are just writing two sentences, summarizing somebody else's reporting and throwing it on the internet. And, and, you know, there is room to be really precious with your writing and there is room to just get the information out and, and be done with it. And so that was really great. And, you know, this kind of stuff I was doing at Curved would never fly now. And that was only what, like five years ago. Um, something that the, um, the CEO of the company I work for says is that, you know, today is the slowest rate of change that will, that will ever occur in media tomorrow. It's only going to be faster and the next day and the next day and so on. I mean, everything is changing so quickly and that's really, that's, it's scary, but it's also kind of exciting. I mean, this is why we're in media is it's, you know, we're all kind of, um, you know, can't stick to things too long. Everything is really moves very quickly and you just, you just gotta keep up and that's kind of fun. Any idea where, where it goes from now, you know, what the next five years are? Oh, I don't know. Um, (laughs) well, I mean, I, I I don't know. I have some ideas. I mean, I think a lot of it involves like how the the media business is going to develop. And I think, um, what people are doing now is people are really trying to um, find revenue that's not in advertising. Um, I think online market share, Facebook and Google had 94% of it. People aren't advertising on publication websites anymore. So if I'm looking at the next five years, I'm looking into more um, more revenue from things like licensing, affiliate affiliate codes, um, events, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, media is moving fast. Your career has maybe even moved faster. Um, you graduated in 2012 and it's, it's really inspiring, I think, to see someone who is 
uh, young and emerging to rise very quickly to a directorial role on a masthead. I think there's probably a lot of journalism students listening and wondering, you know, with jobs as scarce as they are, how, you know, how they could maybe break into the industry and succeed as you have. Do you have any advice for them? Um, the economy was not better when I graduated from college and it definitely wasn't better when I graduated from high school and, and the economy had totally tanked and I was going into journalism school and it seemed kind of bananas to do it. I mean, I guess the advice I have is that you need to really just want to be the best. Um, and you want to, you need to want to win. (laughs) And I, I think that kind of, that sort of, um, I don't know. I don't even want to call it aggression, but like this desire to want to be the best in your field and this like hunger to, um, no matter what you're doing, try to do it the, the very best you can do and also the very best anybody can do. Um, you know, and the, another, uh, piece of advice would be, you know, always make your, try to make your bosses look good. Um, cause they like that <laughs> and they'll take you along wherever they go. I will say, like, try to get as much and as much varied experience as possible when you're in school. Um, you know, whether that's internships, whether that's emailing people to um, freelance, even if that's um, doing stuff that's not really writing. I did a lot of like web production for um, for some of the Hearst properties as they were um, moving to a different content management system. Um, I did a lot of writing slideshows. I did, um, as I said, a lot of copy editing work. Um, I copy edited newsletters and, um, I wrote for a university at one point and it's just trying to collect all these disparate experiences and really trying to be the best at them. Um, that's pretty solid advice. I'm like a hyper competitive person. So like that helps. But if you can, if you can at all channel that, then that that's my advice. Awesome. Amy Schellenbaum, thanks for joining me. Oh, yeah. Thank you. And thank you, the listeners, for tuning in. If you want to learn more from Amy, come to Calgary on March 8 and 9 for the 2018 Alberta Magazines Conference. She'll be presenting a seminar on building a distribution strategy via social media. And she'll be there along with Jeremy Leslie of Mag Culture, former Cottage Life editor and publisher Penny Caldwell, and Anthony Licata from Field and Stream. Conference passes are on sale right now. Take advantage of the early bird pricing by going to albertamagazines.com. My name's Omar Moalem. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you do, there are many more. Check with the AMPA website or subscribe to iTunes for other interviews with our industry's finest. Ciao for now.